0: When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. Tonight on The Readout... This is embarrassing for the Republican Party. It's embarrassing for the nation. And we need to look at one another and solve the problem.
1: Kevin McCarthy imparting his limited wisdom to the caucus he briefly led as Speaker. And with the world in crisis, Republicans at this hour are beginning a game of Speaker Survivor, where behind closed doors, a new batch of Speaker wannabes will be voted off the island one at a time. But we begin tonight with major developments in the Middle East. More hostages released as the Israeli ground assault on Gaza looms. The two hostages identified as Nurit Cooper and Yosheved Lifshitz have been released by Hamas. Hamas's Al Qassam brigades released a video on their Telegram channel showing the two hostages, apparently filmed before and during their release. Here is a still from that video showing Lifshitz, who is 85 years old. Here they are, too, in a video shot by the Egyptian state TV network Al-Khaira News, showing them inside ambulances receiving medical treatment near the Egypt-Gaza border. The military wing of Hamas said it, has decided, it had decided to release the pair for, quote, compelling humanitarian reasons. They have since been handed over to the Israeli defense forces and are making their way at this time to a medical center in Israel. Their family members will be waiting for them there. The release of the two hostages comes days after two Americans, Judith and Natalie Ranan, were released by Hamas. The U.S. is advising Israel to delay a ground invasion of Gaza to allow more time for hostage negotiations. But the death toll and widespread devastation continue as Israel steps up its aerial bombardment. As of today, more than 5,000 people have been killed in Gaza. This includes 436 people killed in Israeli airstrikes in the past 24 hours, including 182 children, according to the Ministry of Interior and National Security in Gaza. Some international aid has entered the Gaza Strip. Over the weekend, the first convoys entered the besieged Palestinian enclave through the Rafah border crossing with Egypt. Trucks continue to enter today, But health officials warn that far more is needed to address the crisis. More than 1,400 people have been killed in Israel since the October 7 attack, mainly the civilians killed in the initial Hamas assault. Today, the Israeli government screened for 200 members of the foreign press some 43 minutes of harrowing scenes from the brutal Hamas assault in southern Israel on October 7. The screening reportedly included Raw videos from the body cams of the attackers as they went door-to-door in a kibbutz. Tonight, fears of a broader conflict are rippling inside Gaza and Israel, as well as in the region and throughout the world. It forces the question, what is the end game of an Israeli war on Gaza? Thomas Friedman points out the dangers of an invasion in an unflinching op-ed in the New York Times. Friedman writes, While President Biden expressed deep understanding of Israel's moral and strategic dilemma, He pleaded with Israeli military and political leaders to learn from America's rush to war after September 11th, which took our troops deep into the dead ends and dark alleys of unfamiliar cities and towns in Iraq and Afghanistan. However, from everything I have gleaned from senior U.S. officials, Biden failed to get Israel to hold back and think through all the implications of an invasion of Gaza for Israel and the United States. So let me put this in as stark and clear language as I can, because the hour is late. I believe that if Israel rushes headlong into Gaza now to destroy Hamas and does so without expressing a clear commitment to seek a two-state solution with the Palestinian Authority and end Jewish settlements deep in the West Bank, it will be making a grave mistake that will be devastating for Israeli interests and American interests. Joining me now from Tel Aviv is NBC News correspondent Hala Garani. Um, Hala, thank you for being here. Uh, Give us the latest, and I understand you have some reporting on the latest, about these released hostages.
2: Yes. uh, 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 I can report that Qatar and Egypt both led negotiations. Um, They have been, especially Qatar, very diplomatically active with regards to getting these hostages released, because as many of our viewers know, they host the political leaders of Hamas in Doha, the capital of Qatar. Qatar has been able to negotiate because it also has very close relations with the United States, uh, one of the largest military bases. uh, U.S. military bases in the region is located in Qatar. Egypt also took part. These two hostages were released through the Rafah border into Egypt. You mentioned their names, Yofshed Lifshitz, who's 85, and Nurit Cooper, who is 79 years old. Uh, they were placed in ambulances. They then switched vehicles and were driven to the Karim Shalom crossing, which is really not far away at all in Israeli territory and now are being medically processed before being reunited with their families. The big question is going to be going forward, will we see more of this drip, drip hostage release? Hamas seems to be addressing not just the governments of the region, not just the prime minister of Israel, but also the Israeli public uh, by saying, look, so long as there's no incursion, every couple of days, every three days, maybe there'll be a hostage release. And the families of these hostages have been putting a lot of pressure on the Israeli leadership, asking them to delay this incursion until more hostages are out. And as far as the U.S. president, President Biden, is concerned, uh, there is also a, a some pressure placed on uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to try to get more humanitarian aid in joy. So we're going to be watching, but it looks as so far as though this long-anticipated ground incursion is on hold, at least for now.
1: Hala Garani, thank you very much. Great reporting. Um, let's bring in Ben Rhodes, MSNBC political analyst and former deputy national security advisor and Eamon Moyadin, host of Eamon on MSNBC and who covered the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a foreign correspondent. Thank you both. Um, this is the perfect duo to talk about this with. I want to start, Ben, um, with the Qatar-Egypt part of it. Um, because obviously it is Qatar that is the one who provides the actual money that funds the West bank. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, not the West bank, but Gaza. Um, so they're very involved. What do you make of the fact that they were the, uh, negotiating partners to get these hostages out? And what does that mean for whether an incursion will be delayed or go forward?
3: Well, I don't think there's anything particularly surprising about it. Uh, Hamas has maintained a political office in Qatar for some time. That may sound strange to some people, but actually, it provides a capacity. To have these kinds of sensitive conversations. Uh, The Taliban, for instance, also had an office in Qatar for a long time. Um, So they would be the natural interlocutor, and there are also ways to pass messages to the Egyptians. I'm sure that Tony Blinken's agenda when he was in Qatar was mainly focused on these hostages. And I'm sure that the Qataris are trying to find formulas. Obviously, you want to release all of them. Could we start with women and children and the elderly? Could we perhaps uh, get the Americans out? There are different formulas to get some of those people out. That said, it doesn't change. The underlying dynamic here, which is the question of whether or not there's going to be a full-scale ground invasion of Gaza that would obviously put all of this to the side in some fashion. Sure, I think Qatar is trying to forestall that a bit through what they're doing, but at the end of the day, that decision rests with the Israeli government, and I don't expect that Hamas would uh, tragically uh, release all of these hostages in the kind of time frame that is in advance of Israeli decision-making about that ground invasion.
1: Uh, Amy, can you talk a little bit about Egypt's politics here? Because uh, I did watch a a translated version of the Egyptian president speaking about this and essentially saying for, you know, bluntly, we're not going to open this crossing to let refugees in from Gaza into Egypt because they're not going to be allowed to go back. Um, The uh, uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia said something very similar. Um, Let me play it. I think we do have it. This is Saudi uh, crown prince, Uh, Turkey al-Faisal, condemning Hamas, um, condemning what happened, but also condemning the violence in Gaza. Take a listen.
4: I categorically condemn Hamas's targeting of civilian targets of any age or gender, as it is accused of. Such targeting belies Hamas's claims to an Islamic identity. But equally, I condemn Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Palestinian innocent civilians in Gaza and the attempt to forcibly drive them into Sinai. I condemn Israeli-targeted killing and the indiscriminate arrest of Palestinian children, women and men in the West Bank. Two wrongs don't make a right.
1: And let me correct myself. Saudi Prince Turkey al-Faisal, he's a former ambassador to D.C. Eamon, can you talk about the local uh, Arab countries' politics here, Egypt and Saudi Arabia?
5: Yeah, and it's also important to uh, add one more in there, and that was the King of Jordan, who spoke actually in plain English over the weekend to a Western audience at this uh, peace summit that the Egyptian government was trying to uh, create a little momentum behind. Look, th- the consensus among the Arab countries right now as it pertains to the refugees or possible refugees of uh, Palestinians from Gaza into the Sinai Peninsula is a categorical no. And that stems really from uh, the historical trauma of Palestinians being forced off of their land in 1947, 48, 1967, in which Palestinians were never allowed to return back to their homes uh, and have lived as second-class citizens in many of these countries precisely because these Arab countries have felt that if they were to absorb them into their populations, if they were to accept them and give them full rights, that they would be somehow uh, conceding the fundamental right of Palestinians to return. And that is a point that the Egyptian president made very clear, saying if this was purely about humanitarian reasons, then Israel can provide a corridor for Palestinians from Gaza into the West Bank. It could possibly create for them refugee tents uh, inside the Negev Desert, inside Israel proper, if you will. And when the operation is over, they can return to Gaza. But the idea of allowing Palestinians to come into the Sinai Peninsula, uh, in addition to providing security concerns for the Egyptians and putting an already fragile economy under tremendous amount of stress uh, for the president of Egypt, uh, President Sisi, it's just a matter of principle that Egyptian and Arab governments do not want to repeat the the mistakes of the past. And that's what you heard as well from uh, Prince Al Faisal, who, as you mentioned, not only was a diplomat to the U.S., but also the head of Saudi intelligence for almost 22 years. And he is very close to the royal palace. So I can assure you that that speech that he gave at the Baker Institute uh, reflected some of the internal thinking of the current crown prince and certainly the current uh, leadership of the Saudi government.
1: Let's go back to because the issue of Gaza, um, Ben Rhodes, and whether or not people are purged from there you know, as Eamon points out, it's it's an important issue because we do still have to, uh, as Thomas Friedman said, deal with the questions of occupation and of what happens to the land. I want to read to you from the Times of Israel. um, Their assessment of the way Netanyahu has dealt in the past with Gaza's leadership, namely Hamas. Quote, uh, most of the time the Israeli policy was to treat the Palestinian Authority as a burden burden, and Hamas as an asset. Far-right M.K. Belazel Smotik said so himself in 2015. According to various reports, Netanyahu made a similar point at a Likud faction meeting in early 2019 when he was quoted as saying that those who oppose a Palestinian state should support the transfer of funds to Gaza because maintaining the separation between the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza would prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. Um, You know, Haaretz has a piece today about how a lot of that money was passed through Qatar. Where does Prime Minister Netanyahu stand vis-a-vis his own interactions with Hamas and what seemed to be boosting them as a way of preventing there from ever being a two-state solution.
3: Well, that's a really big question right now. I will tell you, in my experience, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu kind of repeatedly undermined, if not humiliated, the Palestinian Authority. Um, peace talks had led to nowhere. Um, peace talks followed by really aggressive settlement announcements that made um, Mahmoud Abbas, head of the Palestinian Authority, look feckless. To be clear. The Palestinian Authority has plenty to answer for itself. There's plenty of corruption there, that kind of money coming in from Qatar and other places has a way of not finding itself to the people. So this is something that uh, blame has spread. But it is clear that there, there wasn't certainly an effort to build up the Palestinian Authority uh, on the part of Prime Minister Netanyahu, And there was at times uh, an effort to kind of undermine them and humiliate them. At the same time, you know, Hamas was involved in some uh, negotiations. Uh, over a thousand uh, Palestinian prisoners were released in exchange for Gilad Shalit, an Israeli soldier who was taken by Hamas. That, that in some ways bol- bolstered their standing. But look, all that is has passed and the question is going forward. Um, there is a question of what is the end goal of this operation if it goes forward? Is it to displace two million people from Gaza or a significant chunk of those people from Gaza and create another permanent class of Palestinian refugees uh, in ways that are changing the demographics in what I think some Israelis would refer to as greater Israel uh, as a means of putting a two-state solution out of reach? Or is the outcome that is sought an alternative Palestinian leadership on the other end of this? one that is not Hamas, absolutely, but that is uh, either a strength in Palestinian authority or something different, perhaps drawing on the resources from all of these very wealthy Arab states that frankly uh, bear some responsibility themselves because they were cutting the Palestinians out of normalization deals that they were making with Israel too. Um, There has to be an answer to this question of, what is is Palestine? Is this a a two-state solution or is this something we want to kind of push out of the way? There are clearly some in the Netanyahu coalition um, that, you know, don't want a Palestinian state. They've said as much. This is not me opining that. That's their state of policy. There are some in Israel, many in Israel, um, who want peace with their neighbors. Prime Minister Netanyahu has tried to kind of bob and weave in between those camps, but he's usually come down on the side of the right. Um, and the question is, what is he going to do in this operation? And only he knows right now.
1: Last question, last word to you, Eamon. Uh, is there anyone in the region who authentically speaks for the Palestinian people on this question? Is it Mahmoud Abbas? Um, is, somebody, is he somebody who could essentially be a solution if the PA was to take over control of Gaza?
5: Look, the short answer to that, um, and we see this time and time again, is no, it is not uh, Mahmoud Abbas. It is not the Palestinian Authority, not because of the conceptual framework of the Palestinian Authority, but because of the current leadership of the Palestinian Authority. But I think it's important to put just a slightly finer point on that. And to Ben's point, um, Israel has not wanted a unified Palestinian Authority. That has been clear. There have been multiple agreements between Hamas and Fatah to try to hold elections. But the Israeli government, which, for all intents and purposes, controls, even, Politically, what can happen in the West Bank in terms of rallies, campaigns, events, elections has refused to allow that to take place. And the Palestinians have refused to participate in any sham election that does not include East Jerusalem. So as a result of that, uh, the the fractured Palestinian political landscape is exactly is exactly what Israel has wanted and sought for the past several years.
1: Um, we, I wish we, we could do this for an hour. I'm going to have, have to ask you both to come back so we can uh, talk more. Uh, ben Rhodes, Eamon Mohideen, thank you both for your expertise uh, up next on the readout. Here we go again. Right now, House Republicans are once again attempting to choose a new speaker. Well, one of these guys, most of whom attempted to overturn the 2020 election, finally fill the seat that has been empty for a record breaking 20 days. The readout continues after this.
6: We can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's
1: PlannedParenthood.org future. House Republicans are meeting at this very moment right now behind closed doors to try to decide on their next nominee for speaker as we mark 20 days without one. Nine candidates are making their pitch. All but two of them voted to overturn the 2020 election. It's the most candidates yet. In the three weeks since Republicans defenestrated Kevin McCarthy and wasted all of last week trying rather to rather forcibly install MAGA insurrectionist Jim Jordan, the presumed leading candidate from the new batch is Republican House Majority Whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota, one of the two aspirants who actually upheld the 2020 election, which is part of the reason Donald Trump and MAGA world are already knives out for him. Trump allies are telling anyone who will listen that Trump doesn't want Emmer to get the gavel. Besides actually believing in elections, Emmer's other crime for Trump was advising Republican candidates to distance themselves from dear leader when Emmer was chairman of the Republicans' campaign arm last year. Other speaker candidates include Oklahoma's Kevin Hearn, who chairs the Republican Study Committee, and Florida's Byron Donalds, who declared his intention to become the first African-American Speaker of the House. Donalds has received the endorsement of several fellow Florida Republicans. You will recall that during Kevin McCarthy's 15-vote debacle in January, Donald's was nominated for speaker by Texas Congressman Chip Roy, who once glorified lynching as a form of justice and refused to apologize for it. Talking about his idea to nominate Donald's, Roy told Vanity Fair, quote, Democrats play the race card every single freaking second, so I didn't mind shoving it down their throats. Meaning, despite Byron Donald's vigorous denials on this very program, Chip Roy really did just nominate him because he's black. Good times. Donald is currently in his second two-year term in Congress, one, two, as pointed out by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to my friend Mehdi Hassan.
7: He's only served one term in the U.S. House of Representatives. He last thing that he did in an oversight committee was attempt to submit falsified evidence uh, to an impeachment hearing. I think uh, it helps to have some real experience in one of the most complex uh, legislative bodies in the world before you try to run it.
1: Joining me now is Sahil Kapoor, NBC News senior national political reporter, and David Jolly, former Republican congressman and MSNBC political analyst. And apparently um, my understanding, Sahil, is that even as we, I just spoke, The number of people on the Survivor Island has already dropped by one. Please tell us what's going on.
8: Yes, that's exactly right, Joy. We are less than an hour into this candidate forum that House Republicans are holding to nominate their next Speaker of the House, and there's already one candidate of the nine who has dropped out. That is Dan Muser, the congressman from Pennsylvania. One member walking out of the room told our colleague Rebecca Kaplan that Muser gave his speech, got a standing ovation, and then just dropped out. Now, he was always a dark horse candidate, nobody's idea of a front runner to become a speaker, but that's the process playing out. Now, we expect this meeting to go on for a while, Joy. Uh, they will all make their pitches, and the voting begins tomorrow. The way we expect it to happen is It will continue for multiple rounds. Each round, the lowest vote-getter will drop out. And the moment someone gets a majority of the conference, that person becomes Speaker-designate. Now, that does not mean that that person is going to actually become Speaker of the House because, as we have seen, the last two nominees, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, both uh, washed out after failing to get 217 votes on the floor of the chamber. It's far from clear that this next nominee is going to be able to do what they were unable to do. They're 20 days now without a Speaker. We are somewhere between chaos Bedlam in the House of Representatives. Joy. <laughs> uh, very quickly, one quick follow up. Uh, Byron Donalds. How serious is that
1: talk? We, we know his Florida fellow Floridians are, uh, are are saying they support him, but is that is that serious? This guy's a second term congressman.
8: It's hard to see uh, Congressman Donald as anything but an underdog candidate, but of the underdogs who is not in leadership, who has not been here for a very long time, uh, he is certainly someone to watch. He is getting endorsements from members of the Florida delegation, including Congressman Carlos Jimenez, who was an only Kevin, who was so strongly supportive of McCarthy, kept voting for him uh, on the floor even when he was no longer a candidate. Um, Byron Donalds is also getting some support from fellow members of the House Freedom Caucus like Chip Roy. So there is an interesting uh, coalition he has there but the, the reality here, Joy, is that he's only been a congressman for three years. You know, there are a lot of jobs where you can uh, make an argument that an outsider would be good for it. A lot of members are going to be skeptical that for uh, the job of Speaker of the House, which is the ultimate inside game, it's, it's about herding cats, it's about member-to-member relations, that someone like uh, Congressman Donalds, who hasn't been here very long, could do that effectively. It'll be a question for members at the end of the day.
1: Sahil Kapoor, thank you. Excellent reporting. Much appreciated. I'm going to let you go back. Raise your hands uh, and wave them. If, if anything happens that we need to know about, David Jolly, uh, Byron Donalds. I mean, it, I, I almost don't even want to dignify this this question. I asked him about it when he was on. He, he appeared on this show and he insisted that there was very serious talk about nominating him for speaker. I think he got about 12, 13 votes the first time around. But if they're down to saying we'll go for a second term congressperson who has literally no experience to be speaker, where, where are we at?
4: Yeah, I think Byron Donalds is actually in the mix a little bit. Um I don't think he's going to get knocked out early and that's reason for concern. First because he only has 3 years experience in the House of Representatives, I believe about 4 years in the state house. Second, he Uh, did not vote to certify the election. He's a Freedom Caucus member. And you will hear from his critics that he does have a criminal record in his early 20s related to uh, bank fraud, as well as some drug possession and perhaps a little higher charges than just possession. So is that the face of the new Republican Party in the House? Maybe. Look, I think Tom Emmer will be the first one to get to 51%. But he can't get to 217 if the Trump faction says, we don't trust you. You voted to certify the election. I believe he voted for marriage equality as well. So the two I'm looking for are Hearn and Johnson. The Nation Doesn't Know Them, which actually helps Republicans in this environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They led the Conservative Republican Study Committee, which has over 100 members. Steve Scalise led that at one point. They're they're kind of new. and And what Republicans need in this moment is somebody that the country doesn't know, that's new, still hard right conservative, out of touch with mainstream America. But I think those two might have the best shot if they can't get there. Byron Donald's could catch fire.
1: Uh, let, let me just put up this list again. So, Kevin Hearn, who, as you know, is the chair of the That's Republican right. Study Committee, which means that at least he's got some committee relationships. I mean, part of the job of being speaker is raising lots of money for your fellow members. I'm not sure Byron Donalds, and as you said, the bank fraud thing, I'm not sure that they, you know, they didn't mind about uh, Jim Jordan's connection to a, a coach who was allegedly a child molester. So, I don't know that they care about crime. Um, but yeah, he does have that criminal um, sort of thing in his background. But at least Hearn, like you said, very very conservative Republican study committee. And give us your other one, Emmer, which is the he was NRCC chair, which means at least he's raised money for other people. At this point, is there any rationality? What you just described as sort of a rational way of thinking about who to pick. Are they being rational? Because I just saw a, a, a note that Byron Donalds has appeared the most on Fox of anyone who's running. Is that how they're picking at this point?
4: Well, this is interesting because you can make a case for three or four candidates. I really think Kevin Hearn is the safest pick for Republicans again, because nobody knows who he is. And so maybe everybody could rally around him. Certainly most conservative bona fides. The interesting thing about Donald's, he's the only Freedom Caucus member. And just as you can see, make a case for just about anybody, you can make a case for why they can't get there. And the the member I keep thinking about is Kay Granger, the House Appropriations Chair, an institutionalist who stopped Jim Jordan. And I think if she sees a Byron Donald or some of these others, she's going to say, are we really going to do this? But if you have a Kevin Hearn, somebody who came from a business world, has run the Republican Study Committee, I don't know. This is it for Republicans, Joy. If it's not one of these nine, they're not going to have a speaker.
1: He also, by the way, uh, Donald's made false uh, misleading statements at this first Biden impeachment hearing, trying to put up supposed evidence that wasn't real. Let's talk about the Florida aspect of this, too, because he and Gates are both rumored to want to run for governor. Are these runs and all is all of this noise about the two of them, each one to be governor of Florida? Because, of course, Florida would yeah. have one of them as governor, wouldn't they?
4: They absolutely would. I think uh, Gates is the frontrunner for the GOP nomination, passing even Casey DeSantis if the first lady of Florida decided to run. Byron Donalds wants to be Donald Trump's vice presidential pick. And that is what he is gunning for in this moment. Should he slide into the speaker's job? I guess that's win-win for him. Byron <laughs> Donalds is a man in a hurry, but he's unqualified for the jobs that he's currently seeking. We'll see how this plays out. He would be disastrous, I believe, for the country should he become speaker uh-huh. or... The vice presidential pick.
1: It, you know, It if Herschel Walker didn't exist, I would almost say, get out of here. This can't be happening. But I mean, they try <laughs> to make Herschel Walker a senator. I don't think the standards are super high. David you got Joy, <laughs> That's why Joy in the real party. quickly. Yeah. I keep
4: thinking about the old Southern preacher that used to say same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little Maybe. bit worse. That's what we're living through <laughs> right now with Republicans.
1: <laughs> Where is Carrot Top not available? Carrot Top don't want to be the speaker. <laughs> Go ahead and get Carrot Top in there while you're at it. David Jolly, thank you very much. And no offense to Carrot thank Top, you. he'd probably be an excellent speaker. Coming up, as protests against the Israel-Hamas uh, violence spread across the U.S. and the world, some are using the conflict to spread hate, le- leading to increased violence and hate speech right here at home, aimed at both Muslim and Jewish communities. Stay right there. Protests sparked by the October 7 Hamas attack on Israel and Israel's subsequent and deadly bombing campaign in Gaza have continued around the world. Pro-Palestinian protests were seen in France, Egypt, Lebanon, and the Netherlands. And here in the U.S., thousands peacefully gathered in New York to call for an immediate ceasefire. People also gathered in Italy and the U.K. in support of the more than 200 people believed to be held hostage in Gaza by Hamas. College campuses have become a microcosm of the national debate to the extent people feel comfortable debating at all in the current climate, bringing together a volatile mix of viewpoints. There have been some truly appalling incidents like Cornell University, a Cornell University professor calling the Hamas attacks exhilarating and energizing, for which he later apologized. And some students have been filmed tearing down images of the hostages in protest. But most of the protests have been peaceful, even if loud and focused on calling for a ceasefire and an end to killing on both sides. That's also what progressive Black, Brown, and Muslim members of Congress have publicly called for. Yet many of them are receiving a disturbing surge in violent threats, even as they also face denunciation from the Democratic White House. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, whose family fled Somalia's civil war before emigrating to the United States while she was a young child, shared with NBC a number of voicemails calling for the rape of her children, and for her death. Indeed, the debate over the Israel, Gaza, Hamas, and the Palestinians has in some instances become so toxic, people in U.S. cities as well as federal authorities have been on high alert for violence driven by anti-Semitic or Islamophobic sentiments. While politically, the situation has roiled the Democratic Party and the American left. Some liberal Jewish Americans tell the LA Times they feel abandoned by their fellow progressives, saying, quote, Significant airtime has been given to the view that Israel is a colonizing force, and therefore violence against it is justified, and that the trauma associated with the death of 1,400 Israelis has been ignored. While in Michigan, which has one of the largest Muslim and Arab populations in the U.S., many, have, many there have been outraged by President Biden's unwavering support for Israel and feel abandoned by an administration many view as not doing enough to help Palestinian Americans living in Gaza— and for in the view of some for supporting Israel's march toward all out war. Joining me now is Democratic Michigan State Representative Alabas Farhat. Uh, Mr. Farhad, and Representative Farhat. thank you for being here. Um, you were quoted in a piece um, by our Alex Seitzwald as saying you are many people around you and maybe you yourself um, would not support President Biden in the future because of his take and his actions regarding this situation. Say more. Tell us why.
9: Yeah, right now, I mean, first of all, thank you for having me on live tonight. Um, But right now in the community, there is a real pain that people are feeling. They're feeling left out in the conversation. They're feeling that when the Biden administration talks about justice in the region, it's a justice that doesn't include them, right? It's a justice that isn't marching towards a transformational peace in the region, one that uh, champions a two state solution. And so in my district, in, in my area specifically, Folks have lost trust in this administration to look out for them. They've lost trust that they're going to be protected. They've lost trust that the seat at the table that was promised to many of us last time in the campaign is no longer, uh, No, it's not really a seat more than it is uh, window dressing.
1: In Rashida Tlaib, Representative Rashida Tlaib, who also represents Dearborn, as as do you, said something very similar. Um, and she and other members have expressed, you know, anger that the administration seems to be condemning them for calling for a ceasefire. Um, do you do you think that the administration has at least attempted Biden has tried to sort of, you know, sort of shift his his conversation more toward justice for the Palestinians? He did that in his recent speech. Do you think that's enough?
9: Yeah. I, so, look, the president calling for the uh, flowing of humanitarian aid, the president calling for the uh, the turning back on of electricity and of water is really important. And I'm not going to take that away from the conversation. But what's being missed out and, and what he's saying is we need to restore humanitarian aid and we need to talk about a long term peace solution. We need to talk about the, the, the ceasing of building illegal settlements, the end to an occupation, the end to a air, land and sea blockade for the people of Gaza. That's what's missing in this rhetoric. That's what's missing, in my opinion, uh, for sustainable peace. Look, I mean, folks, I'll, I'm always going to condemn the death of innocence. I, my heart breaks when I watch the footage of moms going through the rubble to find their kids just to bury them. I mean, it's something that disturbs me. Right. It, it, it's, it's deeply close to someone like me whose parents fled occupation in South Lebanon. And so it's deeply close to me. Right. And to see the president leave out those stories. To not seek out justice for those that have died by saying we need a transformational, transformational peace deal is really, I mean, it's hurtful.
1: Um, you know, and not to make this about politics or about elections, but you know, the, the reality is President Biden is running for re election. Um, Muslim Americans and Arab Americans, even more specifically, were traditionally Republicans. Um, 42% voted for George W. Bush, 31% for Al Gore. By the time we get to 2004 and the invasion of Iraq, it was a complete shift toward John Kerry, toward Obama, and toward Biden. Um, has anyone from the administration reached out to you? Um, to say this is our strategy, this is our thinking, and express any concern? Because the polling definitely shows that for younger progressives, for a lot of uh, black and brown progressives, and perhaps for your community, there has been a shift maybe back the other way.
9: Look, I'm going to say this right now. The Biden 2024 presidential campaign has work to do here on the ground. They need to start having these conversations of rebuilding trust. They should be reaching out to the families who live in my area, who, who have been stuck in Gaza now since the outbreak of the war, who are American citizens. And they're trapped there on the border between Egypt and Gaza. Right? They should be deeply involved and invested in bringing them home. Right? We need to bring our American citizens back. That's number one. Number two, to your point, I mean, they have been some preliminary conversations, but conversations alone are meaningless without action. Right I can give the best advice to the president. i can I can tell him what we want to see. But if we're not incorporated at least in the tapestry of diplomatic solutions that we're trying to create, what we're going to come back to where we are now and wonder what was the point? What was can, the point? Can I,
1: can I ask you about the sort of contrast with Donald Trump? who's called for yes. a Muslim ban and said he would reinstitute it, called for, you know, young people who support Palestine not to be hired. He's rejected the idea of admitting Palestinian refugees. Um, he's called for expanding settlements and said they should be fine and legal. You know, he's uh, demonstrably not on the side of Palestinian people yeah. at all. Is the shift away from Biden, period? Because it doesn't seem logical that it might that it will be toward Trump, right?
9: So I really appreciate this question, because I think to understand the nuance of the situation, folks need to understand there's two areas. There's what the community is feeling, what people in the Arab Muslim community are feeling. And that what they're feeling is they feel left behind. And so if they feel left behind, they feel like they should leave their votes behind in the ballot box. Now, for me, as a state representative, as somebody I, I will never find myself campaigning for Islamic like President Trump, who has outwardly said and stroked fear mongering here domestically, saying Hamas fighters are coming in from the southern border, who has said he wants to deport folks who are pro-Palestinian, who's encouraged the same type of rhetoric that I will say has caused students to stay at home in my district, has caused the cancellation of, of classes and sporting events, right? A funeral was canceled. Imagine this. A funeral was yeah. canceled because of a threat. Yeah. And so I will never I will never support something like that. And I'll actively yeah. make it clear to my community that President Trump, whether it's DeSantis, who recently used Dearborn and his political campaigns to say mm-hmm. that, that we had a pro-Hamas rally. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. That's ridiculous to say that we had a pro-terrorist rally when students left schools on an organized markup. Yeah. I mean, that is fear mongering at its worst. Yeah. And so I condemn that. But for me, I think yeah. President Biden has to do a little bit more to earn my support.
1: Uh, Michigan State Representative Alabas Farhad, thank you very much. Um, please come back. Um, I appreciated the opportunity to converse with you. And we'll be right back. As the conflict between Israel and Hamas escalates, the need for factual information is critical. But unfortunately, many around the world are turning to social media platforms where misinformation is running rampant. Some viral videos and pictures purportedly showing the violence in Israel and the aftermath in Gaza are being unmasked as fakes or from totally different conflicts around the world. It was already difficult for users to separate fact from fiction, but it has only gotten worse. In fact, nearly three quarters of the most viral posts on X, formerly known as Twitter, advancing misinformation about the Israel-Hamas war are being pushed by so-called verified X accounts, you know, the ones with the little blue checks according to a recent analysis by NewsGuard, a nonpartisan company that tracks false narratives online. Joining me now is Brandy Zadrozny, Z- NBC News senior reporter, and our very own Jahan Jones, writer of The Readout blog. Thank you both for being here. Brandy, let me start with you. Talk about these fake accounts and what they're posting.
7: Sure. So um, the, the things that we're seeing now, the accounts that we're seeing now that are really dominating the news space are these accounts that have the little blue check mark, right? It used to mean that Twitter had verified that these reporters were really with the outlets that they said they were, that the New York Times was really the New York Times and not New York Times 1. And so you could trust these because when we're reading quickly, we really do seem to um, take credibility credibility signals. And our minds say, oh, this is something we can trust. And we're still in that zone. But the unfortunate thing now is that no longer means it's a verified account. It no longer determines credibility. It says that they this account has paid $8 to mm-hmm. Elon Musk to belong to his you know special subscription service. But our brains are still doing that thing where we treat that as a credible account. And we're seeing constant, constant misinformation spread by these uh, accounts who are Pretending to be one thing, whether it's a breaking news account or, you know, reporters with Al Jazeera, we've seen fakes like that and they're promoting this this false information.
1: Well, I'm putting up a few of them here. War Monitor and Ocent Defender and Censored Men and all of these. Are these accounts based in the United States?
7: Some of them are, you know, what you see here are the seven that the uh, researchers for the University of Washington really highlighted as their new elite posters. And so these accounts are really a hodgepodge of mass tweeters. One is a political operative in the United States. Some are U.S. right wingers. There are there was a men's right activist in there that before the Israel Hamas war was tweeting in defense of misogynist influencer Andrew Tate. There's a right wing PR guy from poland i mean you really do have a hodgepodge of all of these people but they're all doing the same thing they're all yeah. using twitter x as elon musk has designed it now to like promote this fake fast um often very violent um or uh, politically um uh, political with a political uh opera uh, with a political yeah in mind. I apologize. Yeah. But, so that's, and that's, that's okay. what they're doing. And, you know, the most again, popular posts are really these emotionally charged ones, including this sure. like graphic content. So these are the people that they're doing. And what they're doing it for is is money because Elon Musk pays people yeah. who get viral tweets and the most engagements. And they're yeah. also doing it for clout.
1: Sure. Uh, let, Jahan and also uh, Musk is promoting some of them and unvetted un- accounts. What is the fallout from this, Jahan?
10: Well, you know, thank you for having me on, Joy. Brandy, I'm a fan and a follower of of yours, so thank you for your work. You know, I should just start by saying I fully understand I'm going to come across as a curmudgeon, right? Because I'm the guy who is telling everybody at home to log off of their social media accounts. But there's reason behind it. I mean, I also come at this as somebody who experienced... Uh, The summer of 2020, where we had throngs of people sharing their purported uh, allyship with pro-black causes, you know, stand with black women, blackout Tuesday, uh, supporting George Floyd and what have you. And we saw how uh, superficial that was. And so I think when we talk about social media and the ability for it to be a toxic environment, we really have to acknowledge that these executives who run these social media platforms have done a stellar job of convincing us, I'd say indoctrinating us in the belief that if we do not post things on social media, we cannot say that we've engaged in the matter at all. But I -hmm. think that a lot of these social media platforms have been used to toxify the environment, uh, the information environment. And when uh, Gil Scott Heron, for example, says the revolution will not be televised, I think He meant it won't be tweeted either. And we've seen, uh, uh, pardon me, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter be manipulated deliberately by people like Elon Musk to sow chaos. And I think what people need to do these days is just practice a little bit more of informational hygiene. It's not... A given to me, at least, that we should be opining on war imagery in between bunt cake recipes and booty pictures. Yeah. But that <laughs> happens to be the way that we are operating uh, these social media platforms right now. And it seems like a very dangerous uh, path to travel down.
1: And I think what you're saying is is really important is to tr- you know find trusted media sources. There are actually journalists who are some are still hanging in there on X, um, but a lot of them are on other platforms. It's difficult. Very quickly, Jahan. Um, well, I don't know if we have time, but it, give us a, a very quick way to figure out if somebody who is who they really say they are. Now that the blue check doesn't mean anything.
10: Well, I think it's very difficult. I mean, I don't know that there's a way that we can figure out, you know, verify everybody instantly. Yeah. And that's why we people just need to practice a lot more responsibility. The question I always ask people before they post something is, is what you're doing actually spreading the word or are you posting things yeah. because you want to feel useful? I think a lot of people have a different uh, difficulty discerning between those two. But one is very selfish and one is actually fruitful.
1: that you're not a curmudgeon. You're speaking, you're speaking, uh, truth and we appreciate it. Uh, Brandy Zadrozny, and Jahan Jones, our Gen Z curmudgeon, who, uh, is the guy behind the readout blog. Brilliant, brilliant young man. Thank you very much. And, uh, for more thoughts from Jahan, be sure to check out our readout blog. We'll be right back. And that is tonight's readout.
0: When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.